like to read to you from John 4, 1 through 26. Turn there with me. John 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He, and he passed through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of God. Thank you, Mark. Um, <clears throat> we have been making our way 
these last number of weeks uh, through the gospel according to John in a series we're calling Encounters with Jesus. And uh, the reason is very simple, frankly. I want you to love Jesus Christ. The number one desire of any pastor of a church is that their parishioners would love Jesus Christ, that they would know who he is, that they would, that they would understand what he has come to do for them, and that they would put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ and surrender their entire lives to him and be willing to go wherever he says they should go, do whatever he says they should do, that they would be fully and completely and utterly devoted to Jesus Christ. And so we're looking at these encounters with Jesus Christ because Jesus is meeting people and in those meetings he is revealing something of who he is. And you cannot fall in love with a person that you do not know anything about. Contrary to what our culture will tell you, you cannot have a deep and profound relationship with somebody over the blogosphere or over Twitter or through apps where you swipe left or right or those kinds of things. You need to actually get to know an individual to fall in love with that person. And the way you get to know an individual and fall in love with that person is through spending time with them, having encounters with them. And as, you, as we make our way through the gospel according to John, my hope and prayer is that you will have an encounter, a personal encounter with this person, Jesus Christ. And let me say something that I've probably said, I don't know, countless times already, but it's never enough, and it's this. The heart of the Christian faith is not doing the right things. It's not going to the right places. It's not saying the right things. It's not reading the right things. It's not being with the right people. Yes, there's a lot of that involved in the sense that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you become a Christian, there are expectations that God puts on you. Absolutely. And we're going to look at that a little more next week. But at the heart of the Christian faith is a personal living relationship with this Jesus character. That's the heart of it all. And so we are spending these weeks together discovering who this Jesus is in ever-increasingly in ever-increasing depth, I hope, so that you will see something of his strength and more of his gentleness and his boldness and his wisdom and his humility. And I hope, I hope that you will be so overwhelmed by this Jesus, that you will see so much how he is like nobody who had ever lived before and like nobody who has ever lived since, that you, since so that you will give yourself to him. I want you to believe that he's the son of God, sent to take away the sins of the world. Now, last week, not last week because we weren't here last week, but two weeks ago, we saw Jesus have an encounter with what you could call an insider, a, a religious elite, the man Nicodemus. And what was interesting about that, that encounter was how 
very blunt and straightforward and direct Jesus with, was with him, right? He tries to say, hey, you're a pretty great teacher, and we could learn a lot from you, and he just goes, zip it. You need to be born again. What? He was very brusque with Nicodemus. And, and he was with this religious insider, you could say. This week, in this story, we see that Jesus is with a very, very different person. Jesus, this time, is with what you could call an outsider. The Samaritan woman, she is an outcast. She is not part of the cultural elites in any way. In fact, because she's a woman, because she's a Samaritan, and as we'll see, because she's a sinner, she is about as cut off from the religious inside as possible. But what's fascinating is, is that when Jesus encounters this person, he's very, very different. This is the longest conversation recorded in the Gospels that Jesus has with anybody. And what you see here is that Jesus, with this outsider, he is so gentle, and he is so patient with her. He's kind of actually indirect, at least at first, and he's sort of Socratic in his methods with her. He asks questions and, and says cryptic things to get her thinking and to draw her out. And what I'd like you to see are four things about Jesus through the lens of the Samaritan woman's eyes. So we're going to look at Jesus through her perspective, and we're going to see four things that you'll see outlined in the back of your bulletin, and you can follow that outline to help orient into yourself. And my hope is, is that as you see this woman fall in love with Jesus, and perhaps you see yourself in this woman, that you too will fall in love with Jesus. So here we go, the story of Jesus and the woman from Samaria. And the first point uh, we see here is that Jesus breaks through stereotypes. So when you look at uh, uh, verse 4, okay, so the story is, is Jesus had been down in uh, Jerusalem area, and he was going to make his way back to Galilee, which was in the north part of the country. And it says in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, Samaria was this little land in between those two areas that I just mentioned, Judea and Galilee. It was this, this land in between there. And it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, that is technically not true in a sense. Now, I'm not saying the Bible's lying. Stick with me. It's not that, Jesus, that the only way that Jesus could get back to Galilee was to go through Samaria. In fact, Jews typically, when they traveled from Jerusalem up to Galilee, would take the long way around and avoid Samaria like the plague because Samaria was the land of the dirty half-breeds. Jews did not like Samaritans in the least. And yet it says here that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And the reason it says that is because Jesus was sent by the Holy Spirit through Samaria. That's what John is getting at. The Holy Spirit led him to this divine appointment. So Jesus ends up in this little village called Sychar, and there he meets this Samaritan woman. And the point is, is that none of that is by chance. None of that is, is just a random event. This is all purposeful and planned. Okay? 
And so the Samaritan woman, we read, she comes out into the center of town, which is where the well would be, and she goes to fetch water. And there's nothing that's totally normal. That was a practice that was common back then that women would do that. But, and here's, the, here's what's fascinating, is there's something that's not right about all this. Because it says in verse 6, it was about the sixth hour, and then it says in verse 7, the woman from Samaria came to draw water. Sixth hour means noon. This woman is coming to the well at noon. In other words, she's coming in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, and she's coming alone. Something is off already. Because typically, women would go to draw the water very early in the morning before the sun came up and it was really, really hot because they needed the water for the day's activities for washing and cooking and stuff like that. And they always, always, always went in groups, just like they go to the bathroom in groups. (laughs) The women went together to the well because it was a time for socializing and catching up on what's going on in people's lives and that kind of stuff. None of that is happening right now. This woman is a complete loner. She has no friends. She has no community. And so she approaches warily. She sees Jesus sitting by this well. She knows that he's a Jew because she can identify him as such. And she approaches warily. She doesn't say anything to him. She just quietly goes about her business. And all of a sudden she hears, hey, give me a drink. And she goes, huh? She does a complete double take. Because she knows Jews hated Samaritans. Okay? Jews thought that Samaritans were unclean and impure because they intermarried with the pagans uh, around them from other nations. They also thought that they were religious heretics because they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, so what's called the Pentateuch, and they they didn't believe in the rest of the Old Testament. Plus, they had set up their own counterfeit temple in this place called Mount Gerizim where they worshipped God when God had specifically said the true temple must be in the city of Jerusalem. And so Jews could not stand Samaritans. In fact, there was a rabbinical saying at this time that said that um, uh, to eat the bread of a Samaritan was like eating pork. And you know what Orthodox Jews think of pork. And Jesus is asking this woman for a drink from her own hand. Gross. And she's obviously flabbergasted because in verse 9, she says to him, she says, "Uh, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She is utterly shocked. And in fact, her shock is going to get worse because if you skip down to verses 16 through 18, there's more of the exchange where Jesus says to her, go call your husband. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Let me explain that exchange very quickly. It's going to become important in, in a few minutes. So this woman had been married five times. Now, it is very unlikely that she had been widowed five times. I'm not saying that she, you know, was killing off her husbands and she was like the black widow or anything, but she was probably 
probably widowed maybe a couple of times, and certainly she had been divorced as well. And to top it all off, the guy that she's with now is not her husband. She's living with him. A couple of generations ago, people would say that she was shacking up. Okay? Now, here's the point. That's why she is at the well at noon and alone. Because the things that she has done in her life have made her a moral outcast in the community. Her village, her family, everybody would have completely cut her off. And because Jesus is the one who reveals reveals this truth to us in the story, he says, that's right, when you say you have no husband, you've had five husbands, the man you have now is not your husband, proves that Jesus knew when he asked her for a drink, who she was. So he knew everything about her. And yet, Jesus seeks her out. This is what you'd call a divine appointment. Now, she is wigged out by that. She's wondering, what is this guy's game? But, she's also strangely attracted to this strange rabbi because think about it she knows she knows that she's a nobody it's pretty obvious because she's all alone and she knows that she's a disaster she knows her life has an absolute mess that she is about as low as she possibly could get and yet this rabbi this this important person has noticed her, has, has taken an interest in her, and is actually engaging her. Have you ever had that? Have you ever been in, uh, in a situation, in a context where someone really great took notice of you? Like, I don't know, maybe... Maybe you're a hockey player when you were a little kid and uh, you got to go to a Leaf game and, oh boy, who do I say was a great Leaf <laughs> years ago? And, and Doug Gilmore. You remember Doug Gilmore? <laughs> who, who should I have said, Rob? Dave Keon. Dave Keon. doodle. You're the only guy here who knows that name. No, I'm kidding. Um, and, and, and in between periods, Dave Keon, he, he, he picks you out, or Doug Gilmore, or Austin Matthews, now we got all the generations covered, picks you out and says, oh, so you're a hockey player? Yeah, yeah, I'm a hockey player. Oh, yeah, what position do you play? Oh, I'm a defenseman. Oh, you're a defenseman. Hey, what team do you play for? How many points you got this season? And takes a real interest in you. And it, it is absolutely exhilarating to have someone of greatness, someone of importance, take notice of you and take an interest in you. Why am I belaboring this? Every single one of us is here by divine appointment. And Jesus does not care what you think of yourself. He is interested in you. He is concerned about you. He wants to know you, and he is here showing himself something of who he is to you. 
And all I'm asking is, is that each and every one of us, whether you are a believer in Jesus and you've believed in him for a long time or you're a skeptic and you're new to this and you're kind of not sure what to believe, don't close yourself off to the divine appointment. And I know maybe some of you are going, oh, that's a nice little trick there, preacher, trying to get me to listen to all this. But, uh, you know, I don't believe in this mumbo-jumbo and all this religious stuff, etc. But did you not listen to Howie's testimony? Howie stood up here and he told us that his, basically his life was an utter train wreck and a disaster. And it wasn't until God hunted him down and God chased him down and God took an interest in him and opened his eyes to see the truth that he could finally be freed from it. That could be your moment right here. This is not a random moment. This is not just chance. It's not just that you just happen to be here. You are here because Jesus Christ has something to say to you. He's interested in you right now. And if you've always thought that Jesus was only for the good people, or that Jesus was only for the middle class, but certainly that Jesus wasn't for you because you're different. That's not true. Jesus breaks through our stereotypes. That's who he is. Second thing, this woman was shocked. Jesus broke through the stereotypes that he would actually talk to her, but the shock gets bigger because Jesus offers the impossible He breaks through stereotypes and he offers the impossible. That's what verses 10 to 15 are basically about. Jesus asks for a drink. She's confused. She's like, "Uh, okay, um, you're asking me for a drink? And then he says something weird. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And that, of course, really messes her up because she's looking at him and she's like, you don't have a pail, you don't don't have a way of getting the water, what kind of water are you talking about? So finally, Jesus has to clarify things for her and he says to her, everyone, this is verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, what Jesus has said here is utterly profound, and she doesn't get it. What he's telling her is that there was a deep thirst inside of her that was deeper and, and more even important than this physical thirst that she was living with. There was a deeper thirst, a soul thirst that no time, that nothing in time or space or on this earth could satisfy, but he could. He's telling her that I can satisfy this deep soul thirst, this deep longing that you have. And she, of course, still doesn't get it. So in verse 15, uh, the woman says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She doesn't even realize the need that he's describing. But she stays. Like, think about it, okay? You're in the middle of, the, you're middle of town. It's you and this strange guy. Don't forget the culture, okay? This is a different culture than we live in. So this is already really unorthodox. Woman, man, alone, 
by a well, Jew, Samaritan, rabbi, outcast, okay? Pretty unique circumstances. And the guy starts talking about living water and, and wells springing up to eternal life and all that kind of stuff. Wouldn't you just say, nice meeting you. I better get out of here. She doesn't. Because, you see, she is strangely attracted by this character, Jesus. And the reason she's strangely attracted is because there's something in what he's saying that resonates with her. And many of us here this morning can relate to this. Many of us are willing to admit that there's something, there's something off in our lives. This weird, unnamed restlessness. And we're not exactly sure what it is. We can't exactly put our finger on it. Because, you know, our lives are pretty good from many, from many standards. I mean, I, well, maybe we're in a really good relationship. Maybe we're, we're even married. And, and that's pretty good. It's a pretty good marriage. And uh, we're, you know, we got a nice house and we got a pretty stable job. And our, our kids are, are not too difficult for us. And every now and then we get to go on a pretty good vacation. And we're putting a little bit of money in our RSPs. And, and we're cruising along, doing, thing, doing things quite okay. And yet, weirdly enough, with all those things that look pretty good, we're quietly dissatisfied. We're secretly unhappy, not like uber depressed where we can't get out of bed and we can't get, go to work, but we're, there's, a, there's just a, a restlessness deep inside of us. Maybe that's you this morning. And Jesus is saying, I can deal with that. Well, how? Two things. First of all, point three Stick with me here. I can deal with that by first unmasking your idols. So here's the Samaritan woman. Ha she's having this conversation with Jesus. It's about water and wells and being thirsty and all this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, hey, go call your husband. Hmm. That's kind of strange. Seems like he's changing the channel here or changing the subject and she says, well, I don't, I don't really have a husband. And then, and then Jesus responds with, well, that's true. You don't have a husband. You've had five, and the guy you're with right now, he's not your husband at all. How rude, right? Like, we're having this interesting conversation, and then all of a sudden, you go and you expose something of my past something in my life, probably something that I'm not exactly interested in sharing. What's up with that? And what Jesus is doing is, is he's showing her the thirst. Remember, she didn't understand what he was talking about when he said, you've got a thirst underneath your thirst. Let me show you what that thirst is. He's unmasking her idol. See, this woman, like many people, frankly, she was bowing her life to the idol of romantic love. She had somewhere along the way, she had been told or she had been convinced 
that she needed a man. That without a husband, without a man to love her and take care of her, she was nothing. But as long as she had one, then she would be okay. Then she would matter. It was like her water. It was the thing that if she had that and drank from that well, it would basically satisfy that deep thirst within her. And she had been drinking really, really hard from that well. She had been going back to it over and over and over again, but she was finding out that she just kept getting thirstier. It's like a diuretic, right? You know, drink coffee, you drink tea, you drink stuff with caffeine in it, and apparently alcohol does this too. You, you drink it, and it's a liquid, and it's supposed to be satisfying, but the more you drink it, the thirstier you get. It satisfies for a little while, but if you don't drink something actually thirst-quenching, eventually you're going to become uh, dehydrated. And she had been trying to quench this thirst with this romance. And it, it's so popular... Uh, well, popular, it's so common, I should say, it's so common that even you too sings about it. It's on the front of your bulletin, you know that song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I have climbed highest mountains, I have run through the fields, only to be with you, only to be with you. I have scaled these city walls, I have run, sorry, I have crawled, I have scaled these city's walls, only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And you can see how destructive it is because as she's chasing this idol and trying to drink from this well over and over and over again, it has literally destroyed her life because she's lost everything to it, her family, her community, her reputation. Now... Here's what's fascinating. She knows it's true, and the reason we know she knows it's true is because she does what we do when we know it's true. Did you catch that? She does exactly the kind of thing that we would do when Jesus would confront us with our idols, and we know it's true. She tries to change the subject. So in verse 19... She says, well, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She brings up a theological dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans. And that's what people do. People, when Jesus confronts us, and I've seen this I don't know how many times, we do not want to go there. When he starts to put the finger on the things that are messing us up and the idols in our lives that we don't want to give up, you know what we do? We, we try to be superficial, we try to be impersonal, we try to distract ourselves. Maybe we do it with entertainment. Rather than in the silence and solitude of my life where I have an opportunity to be reflective and maybe Jesus will speak to my heart, we start binge-watching the latest season of whatever Netflix show you're into. Or we, we busy ourselves with substances, as Howie talked about earlier, or we busy ourselves with activities. We're too, too busy to think. How many times do people say to you when you ask them, how are you doing? And they say, good, good. Busy, but good. Or they do what this woman does and they distract themselves with religion. 
so busy contemplating the deep theological uh, depths of their faith that they avoid thinking about their own personal thirst. And Jesus will not let her off the hook. So he deals with the problem very quickly and simply. She doesn't like it because he's not letting this go. And she's feeling really, really cornered. So then she does the other thing that we do. And this is the, the postmodern trick. She says, well, who really knows? Who really knows? Verse 25, right? She says, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. In other words, who knows? Like, you've talked about your truth, and I have my truth, and you should believe your truth, and I will believe my truth, and then when Messiah comes, you know, he'll put us into the truth. But until then, we should just really uh, uh, hold back and be a little bit humble about what we believe and what we think, and, and, uh, and we're all just trying to figure this out together. Who knows what's true? Who knows what's right? And that is certainly our culture, situ cultural situation today. And you know what? I, I used to be like way more unsympathetic to that. I used to think, oh, that's just lousy logic. And frankly, it is kind of lousy logic, to, to be honest with you. But we're not all philosophy majors, right? So we don't know that. We just think what's in our hearts or believe what's in our hearts. And that's not abnormal. That's not wrong. And, and on a level, it makes sense. That's true. If there... If, if we're all just on this earth with no transcendent revelation to make sure we know what is true and what's not true, then we are all just trying to figure it out for ourselves. And for you, it might be Christianity and Jesus, and for uh, Bob over there, it might be crystals, and uh, for Sally, it's uh, astrology, and for, um, I am, I'm having a hard time with names. Jeff, there, I'll just pick your names. Uh, for Jeff, it's atheism, and for Nathan, it's Islam, and for Kathy, it's Hinduism. Who's to say? And you know, that, that, that makes more sense to me now. Except, except when she tries to pull that trick with Jesus... He stops her pretty short because he says in verse 26, well, I who speak to you am he. And, and it's in a sense, she's, he's actually validating her concern. He's kind of saying, yeah, you know, Messiah is the one who's going to figure everything out and tell us the way things are and what's really true. And all those things that I've been telling you about having a soul thirst and about really needing to, to have that thirst finally and completely quenched by someone greater than anything else this world has to offer, all that stuff, it would only be true if Messiah were here to tell us. But he is. It's me. And this is the last point. Jesus guarantees what he promises. You see, the reason Jesus knew the woman so well was because he is not just a man. He's the son of God. 
And the reason that he could promise to satisfy the deepest longing of his hearts was because he's not just a man. He is the Son of God. He is our creator in the flesh. And you see, Jesus' mission was to, was to return us to the one who made us for himself. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in Jesus Christ. And the story of the Bible is that we are cut off from God. Like a stream that is cut off from the spring that feeds it, eventually it dries up, it withers, and it, and it disappears. We, because of our sin, are cut off from our Savior. Our souls are, are cut off from the Creator who made us because we have put a barrier between Him and us by our sin. And we're cut off from our source. And that's why we're thirsting the way we're thirsting. That's why it's never able to be quenched by anything in this earth. It doesn't matter how great the relationship is. It doesn't matter how awesome your job is. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It is astounding the number of rich people who will tell you that it's still not enough. And you and I, because we're not rich people, we say, honestly, it's not enough. I mean, if I had your house, I'm sure that would be enough. You know, I got 900 square feet. You got 4,500 square feet. I don't even need 4,500 square feet. If I just had 1,200 square feet. And there's the person sitting in their 1,200 square foot house going, you know, I just, if we just put a little addition on the back and we went up to about 1,800 square feet, oh, then we'd, we'd have it all. And the person sitting in their 1,800 square foot house is like, oh, you know, but I don't have a spot for the ATV or something like that. And I need a 2,700 square foot house. And all of those of you who have a 4,500 square foot house, I don't know what you're looking for. <laughs> I really don't. Jesus came to reunite us to the source of our lives. And when he went to that cross, what did he say? Do you remember? As he was hanging on that cross, paying for your sin and my sin, what did he, what did he say? I thirst. I thirst. See, Jesus was cut off from the source of our lives so that you and I could be connected to him. And so that all the love of God could flow like water into our souls from a pure spring that will never, ever, ever dry up. That's why he says in verse 14, the water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now what does that mean? Like very practically, what does that mean? When you know Jesus, when you love him, when you trust him, it means that there is something deep inside you that cannot be stamped out. There is a joy, there is a confidence, there is a hope that nothing can fully, completely put out. It's like a spring. You throw dirt on a spring, you ever, you ever hear of people trying to build on a spring? Eventually what happens? A spring breaks through, it bubbles up. 
And when you have Jesus in your life in this way, when you face trouble, when you face suffering, when you face fear, you'll face it just like all other people. Like everybody has troubles in this world and you'll have troubles in this world too. Don't think that if you become a Christian, all your troubles disappear. Not on your life. But the difference is, is that underneath there's a joy, there's a, there's a, you don't utterly despair. Uh, I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings, as many of you know. And there's this part at the end of the Lord of the Rings where uh, Gandalf is looking very weird. Gandalf, you know, he's like, a, he's like an ancient superhero, right? He's a wizard who's basically got to save the world. And he's very wearied by the weight of his responsibilities. And, and uh, it says that one of his compatriots, one of his companions is looking at him and he, it says, yet in the wizard's face, this is, the, this is what the, the character sees. He says, yet in the wizard's face, he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow. Though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all, there was a great joy. A fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing. Every true Christian knows that. It's mysterious, but it's true that no matter how bad the news is, you can ask Jane about it after. No matter how bad the news is, for some reason, it cannot bring you to despair. It can't. And you can't help but share it. Because it's a spring, it bubbles up. You know, this woman, it's, it's interesting, it's not in the text because it was too long, but right after this exchange, she goes back into town. This woman, who's a complete outcast, she starts going to the townspeople, and what does she say? She says, with great boldness, no fear, she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. He knows me to the bottom. And yet he loves me. I'm no longer thirsty. Come and see him too. You know, I, I, I was going to say it earlier, but I forgot, so I can say it now, and, and it actually fits the end of the sermon. Thank you, Lord. Um, Nathan and Eddie are, are why, you understand what I mean, are why how he's here. Basically because they said, come and see. Not, not just come and see Jesus. He knew Jesus, but come and see our family that's all we have to do. Come and see. Invite people to come and see. Invite your neighbors, invite your friends, invite your coworkers, and just say, come and see, and let them discover Jesus for themselves, because that's what happened to her. And what they even said to her afterwards is, you know, we, we believe. Not because of her. <laughs> Not because of her. Not because of her testimony, but because we came and see and we saw for ourselves. All right, let's pray. Father, help us to see. Open the eyes of anybody here, I pray, Lord, who, who hasn't seen yet who Jesus is, who hasn't tasted of his grace and kindness, and who is still thirsty. May they not leave this place without 
reckoning with you. And I pray for all of us, those who have known you for a long time, that we would drink deeply of your love and grace in a way that sends us out into our neighborhoods and workplaces and schools, inviting people to come and see, whether it's come and see our church, come and see our ministries, but ultimately come and see Jesus. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name.